It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie, and I'm Ben. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss how the Tory leadership race is playing out, and then you ask us which candidate would be the biggest threat to Labour. So we're recording on Monday morning after a weekend of many a telegraph-based leadership pitch. I've counted 11 Tory MPs have so far declared that they are running, although that could change in the course of our recording or in the course of the day between our recording and our listeners listening. So we won't focus too much on the numbers in case they change. And there will also be the actual rules of the leadership contest decided this evening. So I know a lot of people will be listening to this after that. So we won't focus too much on the on the details of that either. But the idea is to try and whittle down this huge open field of candidates by making the rules so that more MPs will have to endorse you to get to get on that on that short list. Freddie, what will the timings of the election that we know so far, how will that affect how it pans out? Yeah, so as you say, they'll finalise that later this evening. But what we're expecting them to do is trying to wrap up the parliamentary aspect of the election in the next two weeks. So that they'll whittle it down to the final two who will then will go out to the Tory membership around the country and have a straight election. So what I think this is going to do is it's, it's sped up the whole process. This is getting quite heated very quickly. You saw mass announcements over the weekend as the contenders try and attract their colleagues and you're also going to see the MPs who aren't doing as well at the moment, they'll be culled quite quickly. Mm. So I think what we'll see is the leaders, the main candidates come to the fore quite quickly. So this is just going to explode over the next week and a half. So for everyone listening, it's just going to, it's going to be worth watching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's not even a fortnight. They want to wrap up these MPs rounds. And for our listeners who don't know how it works, you know, MPs vote and whittle down the, the, the candidate list sort of over a matter of days really because they want to get it in the sort of 10 days before recess I mean that is that's very quick and it is funny that they're sort of prioritizing their holiday over taking the time to try and pick the right candidate I mean I think in I was looking back at the uh, 2005 Tory leadership contest and that was so Michael Howard announced that he would be standing down in May it formally opened in October and then they announced the the winner in December. So that gave David Cameron, who was sort of, you know, he was at the back of the queue, basically, that gave mm. that gave him months 
to jostle forwards. And he did turn out to be the right candidate to pick at that time for the Conservative Party, as you can see from from his success since. So it's interesting that they want to condense it in terms of trying to, you know, get it all done before recess when it is a very important decision. And actually longer leadership contests seem to result in a perhaps wiser pick. On that, I think many MPs, when they were talking about getting rid of Johnson over the past few months, they always said, well, don't worry, there's not a clear alternative at the moment, but we can trust our leadership election because it's uh, quite a stringent process. Well, that's sort of out the window now because they want to get Boris Johnson out of Downing Street as quickly as possible. Mm. So are we going to see the scrutiny of these quite wild policies that have been announced over the week? And I think Jeremy Hunt this morning said he wants to cut all taxes, whatever that means. Are we going to see the scrutiny of that over a two week or even a 10 day period? Potentially not. And that's very worrying because these Tory MPs are picking the two people that will be one of which will be the next prime minister. Yeah, I mean, there are some wild promises coming out. Nadeem Sahawi, who is currently the chancellor, let's not forget, has said that he wants to cut departments by 20%, right? I mean, that's very unlikely to happen, Mm. really, in terms of the NHS backlog and all of the stuff that we were talking about on the last episode. Um, And I have written a piece, actually, over this weekend on those challenges that whoever the next Prime Minister will be facing in terms of, like, the court backlog, for example. Mm. I mean, Britain is now truly a nation of cures. People are waiting a long time for everything. Record waits. But really, what, what the main division seems to be between this big, wide sort of open field of candidates, like you say, will be culled quite quickly. And the front runner, Rishi Sunak, is that, uh, that they're all promising tax cuts, whereas he's sort of preaching a more fiscally conservative, let's balance the budget. We can't cut taxes now. You know, we have to think about the debt. We have to worry about rising interest rates and what it means for our borrowing, which has kind of been his drier take on the economy, except he hasn't managed to carry it out in the period that he's been Chancellor, mainly because of events like the pandemic, but also because it just wasn't Boris Johnson's instinct to do that. Ben, do you do you think that Rishi Sunak is the front runner? Is that a accurate thing to say? I mean, right now he does have a lead in terms of MPs. Obviously, as you say, we shouldn't stick to the numbers because it changes every other minute, really. But let's just go for a ballpark. Rishi Sunak has about a lead of about 10 to 15 over his nearest challenger. And his nearest challenger right now is, of course, Penny Morden. And then after that, it's Liz Truss. And then it's Tom Tugendhat. He has a lead, yes. But when you compare it to 2019, when you compare it to 2016, it's worth bearing in mind, it's not damning. It's not overwhelming. That might be because, you know, you have more challenges in the field. But, but just bear this in mind. So in 2019, at this point in the campaign, you know, when MPs were rallying around the those who were declaring, you had about Boris Johnson ahead with around, I don't know, a good 30, 40 MPs over his nearest challenger. And then you rewind to 2016, you had Theresa May, the clear, clearer frontrunner after Boris Johnson had pulled out, with again around 50 to 60 MPs backing her over her nearest challenger. Rishi Sunak has a, a lead of, what, 10, 15, when, what, 100 and... Yeah, 167 MPs have now backed him. That, that's just not exactly substantial, I'd say. And you do, you do have to wonder, right? Obviously, in the rounds, the people are going to get whittled down to the final two. OK, so where's Rishi going to get his support from? Do you think it'll come from Sajid Javid and Nadeem Sahawi and Jeremy Hunt, who are pro-tax cut? Whereas Mr. Sunak here is saying, let's not be, let's not talk fantasy finances. We've moved on from the debates about Brexit. You know, normally Jeremy Hunt and maybe Rishi Sunak may have been been natural bedfellows in 2019. But are they now over tax? 
this is, these are the dividing lines of the Tory party now. It's not Brexit as it used to be. Culture war is even playing a part. Uh, half the Tory leadership challengers are, are deciding to have opinions about trans people because they think it will win them support amongst MPs. Rishi Sunak is quite clearly ahead, but he's not ahead by a substantial amount to guarantee him, you know, the leadership in the future, I would say. OK, and how about the polling? And obviously... <laughs> It matters less what the country thinks at this stage in the campaign. So should we talk about sort of the preferences of the Conservative membership? Who are the people who are going to decide on the final runoff of the last two candidates? Who do they most want to be their next leader? Ben Wallace, who was a favourite among party members, has ruled himself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. The polling's already out of date. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what, what happened, I think it was you, who did some pretty impressive polling. They asked members, who's your, like, your first preference? The first place with a grand total of 13% was Ben Wallace, and second place with 12% was Liz Truss, and third place with 12% or 11% was someone else. You did have around about a quarter to a third of the party membership just not knowing who they wanted. However, when you match Ben Wallace up with Rishi Sunak, or Ben Wallace up with Liz Truss, or Ben Wallace up with whoever, Ben Wallace was the clear favourite. Ben Wallace, however, is not standing, so that is not entirely as helpful as we think. Let's just remember who the Tory party are. They are overwhelmingly, uh, they're above average in terms of age. You know, that's the standard for party members. It's the same with the Labour Party. The average Labour member's very old. The average Tory member's very old. They're overwhelmingly white. Um, I think Tim Bale got some, has some excellent statistics on this, which is that, you know, they're, they're more southern-based. They do have socially conservative views, but not exactly uh, a hugely socially conservative thought. It's quite similar to what the country thinks, actually. Um, but, but yeah, so these, this is a type of membership that is perhaps a little bit more socially conservative than the parliamentary party, perhaps. You know, it's just worth bearing that in mind. That's why, a lot, uh, you know, the split, the 60, the two-thirds for Boris Johnson amongst the membership in 2019 was larger than amongst the parliamentary party. I think only Boris Johnson got, yeah, he qualified with 50-something percent. I think, if I remember rightly. What does the polling really say? Uh, amongst members, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Members, members are a bit unsure because their, their preferred candidate uh, is out. But name recognition is a key thing here to keep an eye on, OK? So um, what, do the, what do the voters more, more generally think? And Rishi Sunak right now is perhaps, perhaps the only known candidate, you know? He, about, around about 60 to 70% of the public know who he is, have an opinion on him hasn't been always amazing you know he was known as dishy rishi he was known as the covid chancellor and then he crashed and burned over a, over what was a pretty appalling handling of the cost of living crisis however his numbers have started to rise back up just a little bit but it's it's a slow burn rise and right now he's sitting with numbers that are actually similar to keir starmer's you know mm-hmm. if for example if rishi sunak was elected leader of the conservatives and prime minister you would basically in terms of likability and in terms of the preference for prime minister you would have rishi sunak and keir starmer neck and neck okay he is the only candidate right now where we can sort of say he has a profile amongst the public he's the only candidate right now where we can say we know how he probably would perform if an election was held now which is that neck and neck with starmer although we again it's not Starmer versus Sunak, it's Labour versus Tory, and Labour has an advantage there. Yeah, the rest of the, the, rest of the candidates, they don't have enough of a profile. It's, it's not enough to say, well, actually, tell a lie. 
Priti Patel has a profile. <laughs> it's not a positive one. She has, a, she has a net disapproval of like minus 40? 40 something percent of the public don't think Priti Patel would be an effective prime minister. And only around 10 to 15 to 20 percent think she would. You are home secretary. You're not meant to have that much of a profile. You are seen quite poorly with the public. That's like electing um, a really unpopular Labour leader. You know, it, it's, Priti Patel just has no traction with the public, even though she may have it with Conservative MPs. Thanks so much, Ben. And we'll talk more about that sort of Labour-Tory Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer or whoever else he might end up facing in the next general election in the second section of the podcast. But Freddie, how is the race playing out so far? There's been quite a lot of nastiness, hasn't there? Yeah, there has. I think this is a symptom, again, as we spoke about the speed of which uh, the contest has to happen, but also uh, the number of contestants. Rishi Sunak, as we've mentioned, is an affront runner. He's hoovered up a lot of the traditional establishment Tory electorate at the moment. So I think the other candidates, they are trying to compete with each other and it is getting a bit nasty. I mean, uh, Nadine Zahawi accused... But he didn't specify who, but he accused some of his opponents opponents of uh, issuing smears about his tax affairs. So it is it is playing out. I think from Labour's perspective or from the party's perspective in general, this is pretty bad. It's quite dangerous. They've already had a very dangerous six months. The approval ratings for the party have gone down. And the question, I think, at the moment will be, are the Tory party able to separate Boris Johnson's premiership from the party? Are they able to say actually it was all that guy, we're the good guys? Or are they going to be tarred with the same brush in, in, in relation to Partygate and to some of the scandals that happened over the six, past six months? A very toxic leadership election might come across to the public as more of the same of what they've seen in the past six months. I mean, one of the main thing, one main phrases I think Stam has been talking about it today is having a fresh start. This is one of the, the key slogans that is coming out at the moment. And if you have a vicious infighting campaign then you're not going to get a fresh start and that's going to be apparent to the public yeah and it's interesting that some of the candidates are making a play of that like tom tugendhat for mm. example and he's actually got some quite interesting endorsements hasn't he jake berry of the northern research yeah. group of mps sort of the the head of the red wall if you like and then also Anne marie trevelyan as well which yeah i think this is a really interesting point because we've got to look at the endorsements as well leadership elections aren't just about choosing a new leader they reconfigure the hierarchy of each party so what you do you have a new leader of course but also people's credibility can rise and fall throughout that campaign. A key aspect of that is the endorsements. So, for instance, Kemi Badenoch got an endorsement from Michael Gove. That's great news for her. I mean, it's unlikely she will win the election or even get to the final two. But it's massively increased her credibility. Same with Tugendhat, with Jake Berry's endorsement. So I think lots of these candidates, they're playing for positions, they're playing to further their career. I mean... Tom Tugan, he wants a ministerial position, I assume. So a leadership election is one way he can achieve that. Right, that's so interesting. So some of them won't even have their eye on the top job, but they will have an eye on serving in the cabinet of whoever wins. Yeah, and also another aspect of this is there will be promises of positions. You know, that's how these things work. Often you will say, you know, you can come on my campaign and support me and you'll get this. I mean, no one will, no one will confirm that, of course. But, um, you know, for instance, this is just speculation but you know to give one example to you giving jake berry the leveling up post that's the sort of thing that will be happening right now and it's going to happen at a massively accelerated rate and as you see those bottom candidates drop out 
they'll be hoping for something to gain from lending their support to the uh, leading candidates. Mm. But in the meantime, all of that division and that briefing against each other does make them look even more divided. And I know we had our colleague, Harry Lambert, on uh, a few episodes ago who said actually Boris Johnson and, and the and the hatred of him had actually united the party. It doesn't look so united now. And that's something that some MPs have said to me. You know, we know that divided parties don't win elections. And so we just can't afford to look divided, which must be one of the motivations behind trying to speed up the process. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious and Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Ben? Where were you? You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Sorry, I was muted. Sorry. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. That's a good excuse. We have a question from an anonymous listener. They ask, who would be the biggest threat to Labour as the next Tory leader? So, Ben, do you want to go for this first? Because you were actually touching on it in the first half of the podcast, weren't you? Mm. Okay, yeah. Well, well, uh, anonymous listener, who would be the biggest threat? (laughs) It's hard to say, because just to reiterate, the public don't really have a clue who the candidates are, apart from Rishi Sunak, apart from Priti Patel. A good number have an opinion on Sajid Javid, but these are opinions on people who are not in a position of prime ministerial responsibility. These are people in their respective briefs. You know, Ben Wallace was so well received by the membership, by the country, because of the war in Ukraine. Okay? That's not Prime Minister, you know, you've got you've got to sort of um, bear bear that in mind. So, who will be the biggest threat to Labour? It's it's again really quite hard to say. I, I'll, I'll I could 
sort of say this about Rishi Sunak, though. So Sunak's net favorability is about similar in scale to that of Keir Starmer's. If, you know, Rishi Sunak was prime minister today, he would be level pegging with Keir Starmer. As, as to whether the Conservatives would be level pegging with Labour, that's yet to be seen because the Conservatives now have new brand problems. You know, I, I imagine, uh, as Freddie says, those brand problems may get just a little bit worse by the toxicity of this leadership uh, debate to be had. But I think the thing is, you've got to look at leaders. Who's going to be seen as competent? the opposite of Boris Johnson, and who's going to be seen as a fresh start, a refresh, someone who will, to use the Trumpian term, drain the swamp? Who's going to sort of clean things up and give it, give this country a bit of a start over? It's hard to say. I think Rishi Sunak, there is a positive in that he is different from Boris Johnson, at least seen to be different. He actually has some form of favourability, but he was seen to have handled the cost of living crisis poorly, mm. continued to be seen as handling the cost of living crisis poorly. And I think, to be honest with you, here is a man who is arguing, in essence, for Cameroon-style politics part two, okay? We have, as a country, moved on from that. You know, enough left-wing commentators make, make the fair point, which is that we are broadly supportive of public ownership, higher taxes, all the rest of it. We actually have shifted a, further, a bit further left than say 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the public were grudgingly accepting of things like debt, deficit, living within your mean. The, the, basically, the, the conservative line that was put to the country was very much in tune with what the country was feeling. And that's why into the Ed Miliband years and Ed Ball's years, you know, Gordon Brown's right, hand, right and left hand men, the conservatives had a 20 point lead on the economy back then. Now, level pegging. One, because the cost of living crisis has been a crisis that has hit hard with voters, and two, country doesn't think conservative economics is necessarily the, the way to go, you know, like debt and deficit and not spending your way, you know, borrowing to invest. And we have shifted. And so that's why I think Rishi Sunak, you know, he is the one that on paper, on in the spreadsheets, you know, in polling, is seen as perhaps the best person for the job right now. But that's only because he's known by the public. And I think there's enough pitfalls, there's enough challenges for him there for actually him to be quite, a, you know, Labour could feasibly beat him. The, the biggest threat to Labour is a candidate that is seen as the most refreshing, the most capable of reading the room, reading the country and, um, you know, responding accordingly. That sounds quite airy-fairy, but it is true. You need, so, you need someone who is perhaps not well-known, who, however, does demonstrate capacity for competence. You know, you kind of need a Theresa May-like figure, but someone who can actually speak to the country and actually campaign well. You need someone that has competence. And it's hard to say who it is, really. I, I think all of, the, all of the candidates, they have their pitfalls, they have their positives. All of them can, I suppose, display some form of reset. But I, I'm, I'm the polling guy and I'm, I'm, hard, I'm, I'm struggling to give a proper answer, I'm afraid. No, no, but that's a very good, it's a very good honest answer because I do think some people will just assume that Rishi Sunak would be the biggest threat. I mean, mm. when you speak to people within the Labour Party about that and when, when I have done sort of over the months, they've tended to sound quite quite rude about him sort of almost dismissive I don't know if you've had the same thing Freddie but you know there's been a few briefings as well sort of about his height and, and stuff like that quite quite sort of petty stuff and I, I always it always used to sort of make me feel a little bit uncomfortable that complacency because mm. I do think while Rishi Sunak did you know fall in the eyes of, of voters and f fell in their estimations when there was that scandal over his wife's tax affairs when he was perceived to have you know not done enough for the cost of living crisis during his spring statement and then sort of all sorts of other stuff the green card stuff just this sort of general impression that he was a bit politically naive that did that did affect his standing but I do think that that warmth 
that he received during his response to the pandemic is still there in the public somewhere under the surface. People remember furlough. People remember eat out to help out. And they do remember sort of just seeing him generally looking quite steady and polished yeah. on their screens every day at that podium. People mention it when you go out and about reporting, you know, as we have done quite a lot before the locals and before a few by-elections as well. I think that that could be resurrected there. The issue, I think, the vulnerability for Rishi Sunak is his political naivety. You know, mm. he is generally quite new to this and he has shown, you know, on a number of occasions to be quite naive uh, in terms of sort of how he does his politics. I mean, one great example of that would have been the fact that he didn't resign when he was apparently considering it over Partygate earlier in the in the year, for example. So that could potentially be the thing that blows him up, I think, rather than sort of anything about how the public feels about the economy and whether or not they've shifted leftwards, in my opinion. Having said that, Keir Starmer is also quite new to politics. He's also quite politically naive and people in his shadow cabinet have been saying that recently. An example that is often raised from what I hear is the way that he, you know, approached the, the rail strikes, you know, putting it in writing that he didn't want them to join picket lines. That was seen as a, as a political misstep. You know, former party leaders, former Labour Party leaders haven't wanted their, their shadow ministers to back strikes or join strikes, but they haven't sort of put it in in that explicit terms, which caused a bit of a rift within the party in the top, in the top tiers. Freddie, what do you think? Yeah, I think the key thing for Labour is the key benefit they can have if they have someone who was in Johnson's cabinet and who is completely associated with his or dignified demise and they can point at them and go, hey, this is continuity, this is the same story. It's interesting that Sunak did, was one of the first ones to resign, but he was there for most of it. I, th- I think Sajid Javid said the other day that he had given Johnson the benefit of the doubt over these past six months I don't think that will wash for very long because it has been quite a, a scandalous six months and it's easy for Labour, if if they did become the leader, if one of them did become the leader, to point out to all the things that they went out onto the media and argued for and all the mishaps that they presumably forgave. So I think that would be key in that same token. I think those that did stay on are even more tarnished. I mean, if you get someone like Zahawi there, he's a key part of... Johnson's uh, attempt to survive. So that that will be a key for Labour, I think. Yeah, I, th- I agree with you. I think that that is a big part of it, isn't it? How much they can sort of paint these candidates or whoever wins as being tainted by association yeah. with Boris Johnson. If I was in sort of the Labour leader's office, you know, perish the thought, (laughs) I would probably caution a bit about how they talk about this. And the same for some of the candidates in the leadership campaign who haven't served in this government are trying to use the same argument as well. You know, I wasn't there propping him up type thing. Because there is a feeling among particularly voters who voted Conservative for the first time in 2019 that they don't want to feel that they made the wrong decision. So Mm. I would speak to a lot of people who were saying, you know, I voted for Boris Johnson because I wanted to get Brexit through and he was the right figure to do it. And now it's time for some something new, you know, and now he's let me down and I would prefer someone else. But when you ask the follow up question, do you regret voting for him? It's always a no because people don't want to feel like they've made a mistake. And, you know, I I don't I'm not judging, you know, I don't they didn't necessarily make a mistake. You know, they may have got what they wanted from from his premiership, at least at the beginning. And so I think Labour need to be careful not to say, well, we always knew he was unsuitable for the Mm. job from the beginning in an attempt to try and smear people who were there for such a long time. and, And it took them a long time to resign. 
like Rishi Sunak. I know he was one of the first to resign last week, but he was, like we say, he, he was there throughout the party gate scandal and indeed received a fine for it himself. So I think they need to be careful how they speak about it because part of the Brexit problem and the, the whole reputation of the Labour Party in terms of their stance on Brexit was that people felt that they were being talked down to. Yeah, definitely. I think we're talking here about the leader of the, the Conservative Party and how that can help Labour. The main thing that can help Labour at the moment is setting out a clear vision for the country. That's the yeah. fundamental thing. So these, these are additive, these are additions. I think related to that, this leadership election will distract from Labour's planned summer of policy announcements. Yeah, I mean, Starmer's doing a speech right now and we're all sat here talking about the leadership election. It's going to be tricky for them to get the attention um, and to convey their their vision. Maybe that will change once the leader's in place. But again, we're, we're sat here talking, as it has been for months now, we're sat here talking about the the leadership of the Tory party and, and what they're up to. Absolutely. And then complaining that Labour has no policies <laughs> when we're just not listening to them. But, you know, that is that is the curse of opposition. Summer is very difficult yeah. for the opposition. Uh, well, thanks so much, Ben and Freddie, for joining us. And I'm sure we'll be chewing over all of this stuff in the weeks to come. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. And if you want to send in a question for you ask us, you can email one in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.